Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Motor Learning for Coaches. This show features Casey Kreider, Harjeev Singh, Andy Bass, and John Mayer. The mission of this project is to bring motor learning theory out of the lab and into your practice and game space. After one listen, you'll be ready to coach your brains out. All right, we're back for episode two of Motor Learning with Coaches, for Coaches. And I think after the last month, we've been recording ourselves, listening to our feedback, doing lots of summary feedback. We're including our athlete in the feedback. So Andy taught us a lot. But now we're ready for our second contact, which is a setter, right, in volleyball. So Casey Kreider, let's see how long this uh, can go. But uh, at least for the first two, we got something. But yeah, Casey, you take us away for our topic today. Yeah, fired up to be here with you guys again. And uh, I think uh, a really useful hypothesis that we discussed last episode with Andy Leibniz. And that's this uh, dichotomy uh, between explicit and implicit learning. And uh, maybe as a corollary, explicit and implicit knowledge. And I think it's important uh, to acknowledge that this explicit, uh, implicit construct is not one that is native to motor behavior. It is one that has been evaluated uh, long before it was introduced to a sport, you know, pedagogical setting and, and things like that. Um, so it's something that is, uh, I think, been well considered uh, in other domains. Uh, but in sport, and uh, maybe to a lesser extent in movement, uh, it, it was really kind of brought to the forefront by a guy named Rich Masters. And uh, he, he actually adapted his thesis, uh, or excuse me, his dissertation, not his thesis, his dissertation in 1992, basically looking at the role of uh, implicit versus explicit learning in respect to pressure, in respect to stress, uh, and how that could affect performance. And uh, maybe one of the all-time great names uh, or titles for a paper, Knowledge, Nerves, and Know-How, all spelled, I think, with K. So uh, maybe nerves is misspelled. But um, So yeah, Masters, uh, I think, uh, kind of maybe not the, the initial person, but certainly the person to popularize this, this paradigm of looking at uh, learning that occurs explicitly versus implicitly and the effects that it could have on performance in, in various conditions. And I think to start, it'd be really good to understand what masters suggested, even casually, uh, constituted explicit learning and implicit learning. And essentially, uh, the idea that he presented was, um, and I don't think it's perfect by any stretch, but it's a good one to start. And I think uh, explicit learning is knowledge uh, is, is knowledge that comes from a process uh, of which we are conscious, we're aware, and we could articulate. I think that's the word he used in the paper is it's able to be articulated. And implicit learning would be kind of the inverse of that, knowledge of which we're not aware and, uh, and or can't articulate. And one of the things I think of that's kind of uh, foundational in motor behavior research is postural control. 
And I think all of us in this, you know, on this Zoom call, any coach out there listening, whether you're sitting down, standing up, um, you're constantly coordinating uh, your body so as to stay in a specific posture. I don't think any of us, uh, or very few of us probably, can articulate exactly how we're doing that. Uh, but we have certainly the ability to do it. And uh, that would be something that would fall under this idea of, of something that had been learned implicitly. Uh, whereas, you know, if you have uh, uh, some guiding or governing rules on how you, you know, hold a baseball bat or you receive a volleyball or uh, maybe, you know, even uh, more normal stuff, uh, I shouldn't say normal, but more day-to-day uh, -day stuff like uh, jogging or something like that. If you have rules that are govern that, that, that would govern that, that you uh, use to, to, to guide that behavior, to inform that behavior, that would be probably fall more under explicit learning. And uh, so he took, I think, uh, as somebody who's kind of going through uh, the research proposal, doctoral, you know, initiation myself, I, I'm really impressed that this came out of his, his, uh, his dissertation work. Um, but uh, he designed a study in golf putting. And I think there's five groups that he looked at, and, and I, we won't get into the minutia and, and the nitty gritty of the, of how that those uh, groups were defined and stuff like that. But ultimately, um, he looked at, at golf putting uh, and he used some uh, survey, you know, some self surveys on, on the amount of rules that that uh, guiding rules that, that these putters or these these uh, test subjects use to govern their behavior. And uh, we can get into the methods that he used to induce uh, implicit learning. And I think those are, are really useful. Um, but he, he mostly, uh, the, the biggest thing that he wanted to do was understand the effects of, of implicitly learned knowledge and explicitly learned knowledge in uh, under stress. How does, how does it affect performance under stress? And uh, so as he, he conducted this study, and I think the results are, are really important to understand um, because I think oftentimes this explicit implicit dichotomy gets misrepresented and I'm guilty of this certainly, but I think, uh, the, the things that we uh, assert and use this uh, line of research to support are sometimes unfounded, or, or at least not, not how the research and the results conclusions were initially intended. The first thing, and I think the most important thing that was found was that all of the groups uh, improved at, at roughly similar levels, not, not perfectly, but all of the groups improved. And I've been guilty of this, but I know a number of coaches who are advocates for things that are like implicit learning or uh, that may parallel implicit learning, occasionally suggests that implicit learning is to explicit learning uh, in terms of learning outcomes. This research wouldn't support that. The, the, the idea is that the groups, they all improved. Uh, where there was a statistically significant effect uh, was when pressure was introduced and the implicitly learned groups uh, or the, implicitly, uh, the, impl the groups that went through the implicit learning intervention uh, they saw much smaller, if no, decreases in performance when stress was induced by evaluation by expert or public evaluation by experts and financial inducement and stuff like that, versus the explicit group, which did see, uh, you know, detriment to their performance. And uh, so the, the support here, uh, in terms of what happens, or, or the value, I should say, of implicit learning, 
uh, from a motor behavior, motor learning standpoint, is that it tends to be a little bit more resistant to the negative effects of stress, which, you know, colloquially we call choking in sports. Uh, it, it tends to prevent, it tends to uh, combat the idea of choking. And it, it's not, yeah, they're, they're, the evidence that Masters produced in this 92 paper and then uh, that has been certainly since been built upon, uh, it's not suggesting that implicit learning is uh, better for superior learning outcomes. The, the suggestion is that we can learn. It's, it's the, the resistance uh, to uh, this idea of choking. And uh, this, this paper kind of led Masters and a, and a number of other collaborators to this idea of uh, what, what he called a reinvestment theory. And this is the theoretical underpinning. What, how do we describe why these results are happening? And uh, it's essentially the idea that we, uh, we automatize things. So there's a number of models that have looked at the idea of automization, where we make things, or automaticity, I should say, where we make things automatic. And uh, we do so through the use of uh, declarative knowledge that becomes procedural knowledge after chunking, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's the Fitz and Posner model, which is cognitive associative autonomous phases. And I'm mixing some stuff here, but a lot of them are, are parallel in a way. Um, but basically, uh, the idea for reinvestment theory is that a skilled performer, um, when presented uh, with stress or anxiety uh, in performance, uh, will reinvest their cognitive resources, oftentimes in the form of working memory, but they'll reinvest their cognitive resources um, back towards these rules that they used when they were novices or when they were beginning to learn. Uh, and it de-chunks the information. And essentially, ironically, these, uh, this conscious uh, controlling of their movements uh, takes skilled performers and essentially makes them, in, in a way, novices again. And uh, that, that, that's where, that's the effect, the theoretical effect or the theoretical cause, I should say, of choking. And uh, so this, this theory has obviously been looked at and studied a bunch. I think one of the things that, that is, is uh, valuable is understanding uh, what induces implicit learning, because oftentimes coaches will say, man, if I just don't instruct, then I'm, I'm encouraging or promoting uh, implicit learning. And so then they are immune to these negative effects of stress and anxiety. And that's not at all what Masters and his, uh, his colleagues have suggested, uh, because as any of us have done sitting in the office and throwing the wadded up piece of paper into the, the wastebasket, if we throw it and we miss, we tend to consciously make adjustments to our performance. And so that would, would likely fall on, although we're not being instructed, that would likely fall under uh, something that was being learned or developed explicitly. And so he came up with some clever methods. There's a number of ways that have since over the last couple of decades have been suggested to induce implicit learning. But in the initial study in 92, he came up with this concept of dual task learning. And I, I don't believe, uh, Harjiv, you may have to help me out here as the encyclopedia of, of motor behavior research, but I don't believe he was the one who came up with the idea of a dual task, but he used that to, to look at this paradigm and uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was, it was regurgitating a sequence of letters as these, uh, these uh, subjects were putting, as these test subjects were putting. And uh, the idea there is that they were going to fill up the working memory, distract the working memory with another task so it couldn't be uh, used to explicitly monitor, consciously control this uh, putting task. And... Uh, 
the, some other ways that have been uh, suggested, both by masters and people who have worked either after him or with him, um, things like errorless learning, um, where if we don't have anything to correct, uh, then there's really, there's nothing to explicitly control or explicitly monitor. And uh, we could get into, I, I think Masters is, is a big advocate for things like random practice. Uh, he's a big advocate for things like um, use of analogies. And, and there's a number of ways that he has since suggested or, or people that work in this line of work have suggested that we can induce implicit learning. And I think that would be a worthwhile discussion on how we can leverage some of those things in our practices. Um, but I think this is something that is really critical because I think it often gets misinterpreted by coaches. We, we think that if I don't speak, if I don't instruct, then I'm promoting implicit learning. And I think it's a little more nuanced than that. And I think if you look at uh, where this research has gone, there's been a number of groups, uh, some of them particularly prominent, who have pushed back against some of this research. And, and certainly the claims that are made by coaches or other, other researchers that are saying ex or implicit learning is superior to explicit learning. Like, hey, let's look, make sure we really understand the results of these studies here and what, what that would then imply before we just automatically go that we, you know, we can't do anything explicit. And, uh, but I think it, for coaches, this is a really uh, useful paradigm to understand. And uh, I think it actually dovetails rather nicely with the, the guidance hypothesis when we start talking about using, um, you know, uh, prescriptive feedback or, or um, you know, augmented feedback when we coach, instructional augmented feedback when we coach. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, uh, implicit, explicit learning. Yeah, great, great introduction of it. And before we get into it, I want to hear Harjeev and Andy, what you guys think is superior, implicit or explicit. But uh, just curious, uh, maybe Andy, you could tell us first, uh, maybe in your own coaching or coaches you've observed, could you give us a real life example of someone who is coaching with more explicit learning in mind and maybe someone who is able to create an environment that led to implicit learning? Certainly. Uh, I'll kind of start with the last part of a way to maybe create more of an implicit learning environment. And <clears throat> this was a drill that I see done with our hitters for, with, by Bart Honegraaff, who worked under Franz Bosch, where if a player is having a very hard time when they're swinging, staying on balance, you know, really decelerating properly, um, Bart will have them crisscross their feet before they swing. And that's all he tells them to do. And then as the ball's coming toward them, they then have to uncross their feet and swing. And in order for them to have kind of basically what optimal abdominal stretch, which you could just tell the player have optimal abdominal stretch, but what in the world does that mean to a player? their body has to self-organize around this implicit constraint that he's put them in, in order to make contact with the baseball. And if they fall over, or if they can't uncross their feet fast enough, that is the implicit knowledge that they have about that skill, about that particular drill. And now they have the proper proprioceptive information to hopefully make the correction on the next, on the next swing. You know, if a more explicit part of that could be exactly what I said, tell somebody to, create proper abdominal stretch. I doubt any coach would actually say that, but a coach might say, Hey, stay back longer. You know, if you're a right-handed hitter, stay on your right leg longer. And certainly that is a way to be balanced, but now you're adding that explicit, possibly internal focus of attention into that. And we can get into, you know, better or worse. I think it's more of a matter of efficiency, but yeah. Can we put them in a drill that gives them all the information versus telling them what they need to do during the drill? So Harjeev, if you could be the, I don't know, the czar of learning at Orlando, 
uh, with the magic, you get to decide all the development decisions. Uh, what percent of the time would the athletes be in an implicit learning environment versus an explicit learning environment? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's different when you work with like professionals and like really highly skilled like players. Um, and this can go from the college setting or the professional setting. I think when you're learning a new system, uh, when you're learning something that's related to like the way we're going to do things here uh, type of thing, or like, you know, the way we're going to play the sport, I think, you know, it's, it's fine to use some more sort of explicit type of things. And, and that's just kind of coming from, you know, think about retrieval, right. And sort of uh, just kind of traditional psychological realms is like some people probably just need like three or four bullet points. And they needed to kind of recall those bullet points every time they do certain things because they're just learning this specific concept or whatever. And again, it's kind of, you know, hindered on like the time you have between, you know, like for basketball, it's, it's pretty crazy because it's like you have training camp and you start like it's it's just like and it's just there's no practices in the season. So it's like game and game and game. So you, there's no time to do more maybe that's when you do more of the implicit stuff because, you know, that is just the practice that we have to kind of reiterate stuff that we were very explicit with in the beginning. So maybe that's, that maybe that's kind of like where I would be kind of going at, but, you know, I, I wanted to mention one thing is like the, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of uh, master's work um, is, I mean, it's phenomenal. And it kind of goes down to like how important the constraints led approach is and how like, like that is, I think all coaches should be familiar with what that is. Now, granted, most coaches are probably going to misinterpret what that is, but, you know, it's something as like a framework to utilize. Um, and the reason I say that is because a lot of masters work, um, they've, what they've used, what they've used is like, they, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of compare like implicit instructions to like a whole host of explicit instructions. So like we don't know necessarily which one is actually like, that's why like studies on like attentional focus kind of like maybe compare one and the other type of thing. Um, and like, that's kind of where I've kind of uh, looked at it through like the sense of like information, like just, just talk about information in general, right? You can have essentially it's like implicit sort of um, implicit learning is kind of anchored on like less information, explicit is like information type of thing. Um, but again, it comes down to, what type of information are we giving, right? So I can, again, give more, very, more like explicit information, but what type of information is that? Is that, again, like, like Andy mentioned, is that more the internal focus is more the external focus? So like, I think that's something that coaches need to like think about. Uh, and obviously, again, as mentioned before, um, the skill level of the player where you're at in terms of your practice um, or your season maybe, um, and one last thing is like, it also coincides with practice conditions. So I think what that, that's the one thing they're not separate, you know, random practice will likely, um, you know, increase, uh, there's a study done in our lab where they did random practice and the, the, um, participants automatically, uh, started to think more externally. So they were asked to report, you know, what, what they were focusing on and they reported more external sort of, which means that, you know, that that's like an indirect way of saying that random practice also affects what you're learning. So like, what is random practice then, right? When it comes to, in, when it comes to implicit and explicit learning. Um, and so like, 
rather than getting more into the scientific stuff, it's also as coaches to challenge yourself to really think about, because like I can come and say to you, implicit is better than explicit, external is better than internal, random is better than blocked. But you do have to take into consideration all different things that you're working with. And that's kind of what I've realized when, you know, working in, in professional sport is the skill level, the time when you're doing it, you know, what you're trying to get at, what are your goals? Like coaches need to have a good, again, mental checklists are the best. Um, tracking whatever you're doing is, is really needed. Um, tracking practices and all your practice plans and see what works, what doesn't. Um, coaches have a lot to do. And this is like a, it's just another science, I think, that like I have full respect for. I mean, I'm not a coach at all, but you guys are have so much on your plate um, that uh, I don't even know if you have time for this, but I think it's important when it comes to, you know, uh, understanding what works and what doesn't. Now, again, the motor learning literature is a great way to kind of start. Uh, and then it's kind of like, you know, figure out what works, what doesn't. I like it best, Harjeev, when you just tell me, hey, just give them external, have them implicit, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. So that's where I'm at. But uh, Casey, curious, because uh, I feel like when I've heard from coaches and I've uh, tried to better understand what learning looks like, people often talk about a debrief or a review of an activity. And it seems like in those sessions when you're, yeah, you're, you're even summary feedback, say after we just did some sort of setter activity, a lot of the things that come out is explicit information like, oh yeah, it worked really well because I moved this way or I was able to do this thing. So I, I, my understanding at Miami is you're, you know, you're, you're doing things very implicitly, but so I'm wondering, do you still do debriefs or how do you, how do you go about that, that part of practice? Yeah, um, well, certainly we don't uh, just ignore the athletes after they're done with the drill and, and go mute or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll absolutely have conversations with them. I, the, the kick that I've been on this season more than anything is this concept of co-design. I think it's kind of been in vogue the last, since Carl Woods has, has uh, really kind of brought it back to our attention. It's certainly not the first person to ever talk about having a, a shared relationship or a shared experience in terms of learning with the athlete, but um, it's been really productive for us. So a lot of our debriefs um, are these hopefully two-way conversations. And if anything, if it's going to be one way, it's them telling us, here's what I experienced. And then <clears throat> ironically, a lot of what we do um, to, to kind of uh, touch on one of the things that masters is pretty supportive of is uh, we're just constantly looking for the, this idea of an integrated analogy that some, some idea that can capture, um, you know, the, the entire deal, not, not like a, an aspect of the skill or whatever. It's just, Hey, that what we're trying to get better in this area, can we come up uh, together and preferably you before me, but can we come up with an integrated analogy uh, that captures the whole deal. So uh, if anything, I can ask, Hey, were you, you know, as tall as the case may be. And uh, then uh, that, that would be probably more uh, what our debriefs look like is, is uh, man, it'd be interesting to, to go back and have somebody from the outside evaluate them. But I think a lot of them telling us stuff, here's what I feel, here's what I see, here's what, you know, here's, you know, my, my response to all this. Um, and then we're just uh, as like a cheap trick, <laughs> we're looking for these analogies whenever we can find them because uh, they just, uh, they've been proven really effective. But I think maybe more than anything for us, this idea of uh, a collaborative kind debrief interaction afterwards has been really productive. And if anything, 
we're trying to use our knowledge of motor behavior literature to gently nudge them through questioning and, and pointing things out away from anything that may be internal uh, when we can, getting them to reframe things uh, externally, implicitly, all, the, all this stuff we've been talking about. But uh, yeah, our debriefs, I think, uh, I don't know that I'm going into every debrief thinking implicit learning uh, by any stretch, uh, but, but for me, the co-design thing has been huge. Actually, John, I think one of the things, yeah. if you don't mind, um, I think something that uh, is, it's not the most important thing in the world uh, to point out, uh, but I think there, it does speak to a broader concern that I think if you're, you follow motor behavior literature on Twitter or anything like that, where it can get a little dicey, um, is, you know, I think, so Andy talked about this, this clever concept of, of flipping the feet. And then I'm just going to give you this constraint. And to me, that speaks uh, pretty classically to a constraints-led approach. Um, and I think that uh, there's a huge parallel between things being implicitly learned uh, and the constraints-led approach on the front end in terms of how coaches apply things. And uh, on the back end, the theory behind them is there's some significant difference. One is, is talks about things like encoding. The reinvestment theory talks about encoding and automaticity. And that's going to be stuff that probably tracks a little more cognitive psychology. Uh, and then the constraints-led approach is, is uh, alternatively probably a little more rooted in ecological psychology, ecological dynamics, dynamical systems, all that stuff that seems to be the new, the new thing. <laughs> Um, but I think, uh, one of the places you, on Twitter, you get these researchers who are, I mean, just brilliant, brilliant and, uh, very fiercely, uh, supportive of the, the work that they've done. And they just bicker and they battle and they say, well, not this and not that. And you're, you're wrong. And you're, and, uh, as a coach, as somebody who's more a lay person than a researcher, I, at the end I go, yeah. Okay. So whether we call it implicit learning, the constraints led approach, whatever on the front end for me. A lot of it looks and feels pretty similar to me and to the athlete. And that relationship is going to be the most important one. And so if anything, I think in discussing it, I, I have no, no problem saying that I tend to lean a little more ecologically uh, when I, my ears perk up, when I hear constraints led and stuff like that. But I don't think that automatically disqualifies the understanding and appreciating the concept of implicit learning and its value. Even if some of the theory, uh, doesn't resonate with me the same way that maybe the, the theory that underpins the constraints. But I guess what I'm getting at here is that my hope is that uh, we, for coaches, because this is a, this is a podcast, a conversation for with and for coaches that on the front end, a lot of this stuff does overlap and that's uncomfortable for some of the real big time theorists and researchers to acknowledge, and they can get into the nitty gritty and go, see, it doesn't overlap. And you go, okay, fine. Maybe it doesn't. But to me, my perception of it, my athlete's perception of it, it does, it is very similar. And that's going to be the most important uh, under, the shared understanding is between me and the athlete, not between me and the researcher, not between the athlete and the science. It's going to be uh, us uh, doing it together. And as long as we're on the same page, then the front end, to me, presents pretty similar. I think you bring up an excellent point in terms of like, you know, the uh, whatever theoretical approach you follow and like, you know, obviously let the theory sort of guide your practice. That's great. I mean, it's always good to have some sort of, you know, uh, way to do certain things. Um, but at the same time, like I think about like, you know, we talked about feedback and all that. And, and I think that the theories can also guide how you say certain things. So like we talked recently, you just talked about like, you know, providing, um, you know, debrief feedback on like, you know, a, you know, a setter or whatever it comes to like maybe the video uh, or video room or whatever it is. Like, 
questions like, you know, what did you see there kind of entails a predictive modeling approach, right? Versus questions like, what can you do, you know, if you're presented with these conditions next or, or what do you think you can do better, you know, here? kind of relates more like the transition feedback approach, like the, the whole dynamical systems type of. So I think those two different approaches, while yeah, I, it's just a kind of a guide for coaches, they also can guide how you actually use you know, your questioning and all that. And I think that's something that's not talked about a lot. And I've been recently kind of just thinking about that in a way, because we always talk about practice conditions, practice conditions and how these different, you know, theoretical models can and, and that's kind of where I stop and I'm like oh, all right the literature's out there the literature's going to come like that's why you know it, pick one or the other but I think the most important thing is what you mentioned is that co-creation aspect of it is what do I what did, what does it take so that my player can go out there and perform the best that they can you know and and sometimes that may just be a predictive modeling approach but sometimes it may just be the other one and kind of understanding that I think is very useful um, for, for all coaches. So I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Good uh, distinction. So saying, what did you see here? Maybe it would lead to more explicit and what can you do here would be more of an implicit nudge. Is that, is that correct? I didn't think about it that way, but that, that okay. sounds like good. So I, I, you know, it's again, I'm like thinking on the spot right now. So yeah, I, I don't, I haven't really thought about this either, but when, when, you know, the idea of co-design is obviously so important. And I think that's the one thing coaches are actually very good at is like building those relationships and kind of, you know, really getting to know the person and stuff like that. Um, but I also think like that can guide sort of the theoretical approaches that we take in our practices. Um, and honestly, it might be a mix of both and that's okay. Cause at the end of the day, I may believe in certain things, but if my athletes performing the best that they can and we're getting results, then maybe a mix is better. You know, uh, I'm not, I'm not doing a literature review. I'm not doing a project with, with this player right now. I'm just trying to make them the best version of themselves. So that's kind of where, where, where my head is at, especially like as I transition from like academia to more sort of, uh, you know, the applied side, that's kind of where I'm, uh, getting at, but, uh, but that's kind of where like all the, you know, coaches need to really spend some time understanding just, you know, general psychology and understanding, you know, what is learning? What is teaching? And they're two separate things. And so like, uh, these are the, the things that uh, are, are, I think, come up a lot. And um, yeah, Twitter is, uh, Twitter is good, but just follow the right people. <laughs> so, so Andy, if I'm working with an athlete, and I'm trying to create an environment that leads to more implicit learning, what would I, maybe what feedback could I get when I observe them in performance that like, oh, I think maybe we're on the, the right path here. Feedback from them or. Provide? Yeah. Like if I'm, yeah, if I'm watching them play, like how could I tell I've created, maybe prepared them for pressure versus, you know, some things come out that I, you know, yeah, aren't as beneficial to performing as well as you want. And Herjeev and Casey, please step in and correct me if I'm, I'm off on this. I think one possible litmus test or characteristic of seeing how implicit learning plays out in the performance world, if you're looking at film after the fact where you ask the player, you know, where was their mind at? We know that when pressure is hit, working memory just goes out the window. Working memory is shot. And so I think it'd be interesting to look at, you know, kind of the germane cognitive load, which is a $15 word for what information are they attuning to during this pressure 
And if they're really attuning to the proper information when the pressure is hit, then that means their working memory is a little stronger because they're not reinvesting in the movement itself or in the knowledge and the explicit knowledge of the skill. And granted, hindsight's 2020. If you ask somebody the next day during film or you ask them after the fact, but I think that might be an interesting litmus test of, okay, have they learned this implicitly based on where they were able to attune their attention and where they attuned to like the germane or the beneficial cognitive load in the moment because they were able to see the optimal information, whether it's on the court or in the field. I think we're barely just touching on this uh, topic, but I want to try to keep these shorter. Casey, uh, how could you take us home? What could you do to summarize us and and uh, yeah, help uh, cap this off. Well, I think Andy just uh, opened an entire when he started talking about attention and attune. And uh, but uh, you know, for me, I think um, this this dichotomy is really valuable to understand. And it and it's I think equally so. It's it's really important to understand that the research is not suggesting that explicit learning is is inferior to implicit learning in terms of learning outcomes, like the performance outcomes afterwards. And so one of the things that I've been guilty of is this promotion of implicit learning promotion because it's better, it's better than, than explicit. Well, uh, the research isn't necessarily supportive of that. What it's supportive of uh, so far is that it, the, the any, any time, and, and, and sports tends to bring a lot of stress and anxiety, uh, especially at you know, higher levels, but um, that implicit learning may be a little more impervious to that. Um, but I think one of the things that we've done often uh, with our athletes is, is just, and this has been a significant change for me as a coach, but ask them, hey, how'd you do that? <laughs> you know, especially when we see something impressive, we go, how'd you do that? And uh, once upon a time, it was really important to me that they had an a, a explicit understanding of how they did that. Well, I, you know, I, I moved like this and I, I looked at these things and uh, I, I've come to really appreciate it. I have no clue. <laughs> and uh, it's that is, yeah, the, the most casual litmus test to steal Andy's phrase. But um, when they go, I, I tend to celebrate. Hey, that's awesome. That's that's uh, if you don't know, that's not the worst thing in the world. And we don't we want to if anything, a lot of times kids get uncomfortable when, or athletes, I should say, get uncomfortable and they don't know. Like if, if you ask them, Hey, how'd you do that? And they go, I, I don't know. They want to, they want to generate some random uh, response, which probably isn't accurate. And you go, Hey, that's awesome. That's, that, and that's a great sign, you know, uh, all things considered, but yeah, uh, rambling a little bit here, but I apologize. I could talk about this stuff forever. Um, yeah, no, I think that's that situation. I, I used to say as a coach before I learned about this was, Oh, you got to be more mindful. Mm -hmm. like why, why aren't you focused? So I think that's a really like real life distinction that's good for coaches to consider. Yeah. Well, good. I think we barely touched the iceberg of this topic. We probably could do a, a round two on it, but it was good to uh, to get into it. And I think it gives coaches some things to to consider. And I love how it's not black and white and how there's uh, considerations for hopefully understanding what explicit and implicit are and, and an understanding of how you can create that environment and when you want to create it. So. This is a good one. Looking forward to doing more with you guys. Thanks, guys.